0: In order to keep them from continuing to make the same mistake over and over again, there are times when we confess our sins, and in God's omniscience, He knows that we've learned our lesson. Perhaps we've shocked ourselves sufficiently that we're not going to be going down that particular road again. But there are also times when we confess and we are forgiven. We're restored to experiential fellowship with God. But God knows that there is, in our hearts, a desire to continue sinning in the same way. We would never openly admit that. But God knows the depths of our hearts. And He knows what's really in there. And He knows that we have a desire to do that one again. And it's in those times that He institutes corrective discipline to discourage us from going down a path that will ultimately be bad for us. That's what's happening to David in our present narrative. The discipline will not all come at once. It will be spread out over a number of years, perhaps almost ten years. The child of the adultery will die. One of David's sons will rape one of David's daughters. Another son will murder the brother who committed the rape. And then the son who murdered his brother will lead a rebellion against his father David and die in the process. This discipline will occur over time and will be exceedingly painful for David. One thing that needs to be noted before we move to the second phase of David's discipline, actually a couple things need to be noted. As we study these narratives, we're going to see that there are other people involved in David's discipline. A child who was perfectly innocent died because of something that his father did. A daughter, today we'll see, who in the text is presented as a young girl, a woman of purity, a woman of integrity, is raped. We have to ask ourselves a question before we go any further. What about these innocents? These people have done nothing wrong, at least nothing associated like David has done. The first thing that we have to learn from a narrative like this is that sin carries with it collateral damage. Sin is seldom, if ever, carried out in a vacuum. The argument that people should be able to do whatever they want to do provided it does not negatively affect anyone else, sounds good in theory. But the problem is that it's very difficult in practice to isolate behaviors. Gay marriage, for example. Gay marriage is a sin. To argue against that is to argue against the Word of God. And it's not a sin whose effects can be isolated. It corrupts the very fabric of a culture While a few isolated gay couples living together may have a minimal effect on a culture, granting homosexual couples the right to marriage and all the rights associated with it, including the right to adopt an innocent young child, will eventually take a culture down. When Christians promote tolerance with respect to a behavior that God doesn't tolerate, We find ourselves in that equation on the opposite side of the equation from God. We find ourselves in opposition to God. It's a prescription for disaster and national judgment. This is an example of something that's in our culture today that doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's difficult to isolate it that way. I'm all for personal liberty. Please don't take this wrong. I'm all for personal liberty. But as a Christian, I cannot promote, tolerate, or vote for liberties that are openly sinful. A non-Christian may can do that, but I can't do it as a Christian. What side of the gay marriage issue do you think that Jesus would be on if he was in a ballot booth and casting a vote? How do you think he would vote on that? Well, there's your answer as to how you should vote. If Jesus is going to vote one way, you have no right to vote the other way. As a Christian, I'm saying. I only picked that issue because it's one that's currently being discussed in our culture. But my bigger point is that sin carries with it collateral damage. Sin is very difficult to isolate. The sin of adultery, for example, is very difficult to isolate. We think, oh, it's just between this guy and this woman. Oh, well, yeah, but we have to include the spouse. Well, that's true. Well, what about the kids? Well, what about grandkids? Or what about friends? There is a wide wave that spreads out from one sin. It seldom ever just affects those two people. That's part of what we see here. That David had to learn it, and we need to learn that from this this series of narratives on discipline. There are going to be people affected by David's sin that had nothing to do with David's sin. That child was innocent. Yet that child died because of what David did. This daughter, this daughter Tamar, is totally innocent, at least as she's presented in the text, oh, I know she has an old sin nature. I know she's sinned. We could rationalize what well, she's done, this or that. I don't know. God knows. But in, with respect to David's sin with Bathsheba, Tamar's innocent. But yet David's sin has a wave that engulfs her also. So that's the first thing that we must consider is that sin carries with it collateral damage. The second thing that we have to consider before we get into this phase of the narrative is that God will ultimately bless the innocent. That's something we have to count on as Christians. When we don't have all the facts, when we can't explain it all the way, we have to know that God is good. That's something that we must forever keep in the forefront of our thinking, not just with regard to this issue, but all issues. God is good. He's ultimately good. God is also infinitely wise. He can take even the most negative of circumstances and work them out for his glory and for his good. He did it with the child of the adultery. The child of the adultery is in heaven right now. We could speculate, would that child have gone to heaven? Had this not happened? I don't know. But I know the child died and the child went to heaven. God had the child's ultimate good in mind as well as the ultimate good of his overarching plan. He's also going to do it for Tamar, the victim of rape in our passage today. The text is not going to specify how. She's a supporting player in this narrative. If the narrative was primarily about her, I suspect we know how God took care of her. But I'm confident that he did, even though the text doesn't reveal the specifics of it, because this this text is not so much about Tamar, and I don't mean to be callous or cold by saying that. The text is about David and, and the ramifications of his terrible choice. And we're going to see it a little bit later. I'm going to put that in the plural. The terrible choices that he made. God is going to ultimately bless the innocent. After the report of the death of the child in verses 16 through 23 of chapter 12, verses 24 and 25 tell us that later, sometime later, Bathsheba, bore another son to David, and his name was Solomon. That's what David named him. But the Lord indicated that his name should be Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. So I don't know what they called him in the house, but they would have been wise to call him Jedidiah. Verses 26-31 through then relate that David's army was fully and finally victorious over the Ammonites. When this victory took place, the wealth of Ammon, was taken by David, and according to a parallel account in 1 Chronicles chapter 20, David wanted to make a military point that he executed all the survivors. That's not in 2 Samuel 12, but it is in 1 Chronicles chapter 20. It was a brutal but total and complete victory. We might wonder why this little section, verses 26 through 31, is inserted right in the middle of all these disciplined narratives. Why would that be inserted here? Have you ever thought about that? It's not just random. The reason that this is inserted here is to demonstrate to us that God hasn't forsaken David. We might wonder, because all we're going to study for the next several weeks is one piece of discipline after another, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse as he goes on. But in the meantime, remember that David's been restored to fellowship. And so there are aspects of David's life that are being blessed even though he is in one aspect of his life is being disciplined terribly. That's something we need to remember too because sometimes, someday we're going to to commit some sins for which we receive discipline. But I've got to tell you, when that happens, your life is not over. Keep living it because there will be aspects that will still be blessed because you're walking in fellowship with the Lord. Just because you're being disciplined by God doesn't mean that every aspect of your life is going to go south. So you keep living it. And that's what David did. So this narrative actually both, the fact that another child was born and the fact that they were victorious over this enemy that they've been fighting for some time the Ammonites, this demonstrates that David's life went on in spite of the discipline. Now, you wonder, what am I going to do if I undergo discipline from the Lord? You know what you're going to do? You're going to get up the next morning. You're going to praise God for the day that he's made. You're going to take the shower, put your clothes on. You're going to go to work or do whatever you need to do. And you're going to continue living your life. And then if God continues to discipline you, you're going to take it as it comes because you know that he's good and he loves you and he's doing it for your blessing ultimately. You don't quit. I'll never forget Winston Churchill's admonition to the British people in the middle of World War II, where he said, Never, 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 never quit. That's good for the Christian to remember, too. We fail all the time. But that's not an excuse for quitting. You don't quit until you take your last breath, and you I say, okay, that's it. Now take me home, Father, let's get it on. It's going to be great in eternity. Until then, you still strive, and strive is not a bad word, no matter what people might tell you. You still strive to love God with every ounce of your being until he takes you home. That's what these two paragraphs teach us. And, I, and I'm not going to go over all the details. There's some pretty interesting details of the amount of wealth that David got from Ammon. But the bigger fact is that he was prospered in spite of the fact that he was under discipline. And that's something that you're going to need to remember someday. All of us are going to because we're going to go through discipline. Remember, it's not a time to quit. It doesn't mean God doesn't love you. It's a time to to turn your attention even more directly upon him. Now, chapter 13. That was after this, after these victories, that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin. And it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. I want to show you this. You've got part of it on your your chart. What I've done is narrowed down the essential aspects here. And I wanted to show you just a little bit about David's family. As I do this, I want you to just sit back and marvel that he didn't get himself into more trouble than he got himself into. David had eight wives. I've only shown five up here. The, the dot, dot, dot is three that I didn't, I didn't have room to put on there. That right there, you know the guy's going to have trouble. Eight wives. He's certainly violating God's divine order. The first one, Michal, remember that's Saul's daughter. He has no children with her. Ahinolam is the first wife that he has a child with, and the very firstborn, or at the very least, the firstborn son is this man Amnon. Then with Abigail, he has a son by the name of Kiliab, who's not really a part of this narrative. But then the third son, Absalom, is a huge part of this narrative. He's the son of David and Machah. Now, Tamar is also the son of David and Machah. I wanted you to see this, and actually later we have, through Bathsheba, the last wife, and to his credit, Bathsheba was his final wife. And it does look like that Bathsheba is the wife that he considered his wife after this. But he had Solomon with Bathsheba and four children altogether, at least four sons altogether. But if you look at the chart that you got there, David had eight wives and 19 sons. Eight wives and 19 sons. That did not count the daughters. And if we just assume that he had an equal number of daughters as sons, and that's maybe fair. I don't know. Who knows? But statistically, you'd think he probably did. He could have had 38 kids through several different women. No wonder he had a problem. Where would they all live? Were they all in his household, in the palace? I would imagine he was providing for all of them in some way. How do you keep 19 sons and who knows how many daughters straight? How do you provide them any kind of fatherly care, any kind of tenderness, and any kind of love? And what's this? Any kind of instruction on how to grow up as a man of integrity, especially in the area of dealings with women, it's going to be no wonder that this this oldest child, Amnon, has trouble with women? Who's his role model in this area? His father. Now, if you'd have said, we don't know this, but if you'd have said Amnon was a great warrior, then I could say, okay, he had his father's a role model for that. But to be a man of integrity when it comes to women? It doesn't shock me at all. That he has this lust for his sister. Now, that's his half-sister. They share a father, but they don't share the mother. And this is going to be one of the reasons why Absalom is going to come after Amnon in the next narrative. Because it's his full sister that Amnon is going to rape. Keep that in mind as we go through this narrative. It will help you to understand who the major players are. Chapter 13, verse 1. It was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. For she was a virgin and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her, Absalom and Amnon, at the time that this chapter opens, chapter 13, are probably in their late teens or early 20s, probably at the most. And if we were to say Amnon may have been 20, 21, Absalom was probably 19 or 20, somewhere in that range. Tamar is younger. Tamar is not born until they get back to Jerusalem, after David has become king. And so it's it's very probable that Tamar, at the time that this is written, at the time that this rape takes place, is maybe 15, maybe 14, somewhere in that range. But she's a young virgin. She's a tender young virgin, a woman of integrity, at least as far as we can tell from this text. That's how we open this narrative up. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very shrewd man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Then Amnon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Thus twice the same word love has shown up, Ahav, shows up in verse 1, also shows up in verse 4. The word Ahav can mean love like you and I mean love. When we say this, this man loved this woman. But it also can have the connotation of lust. And we're going to find out later in this passage that Amnon doesn't love her. If he loved her, he would would not have done what he did to her. He has a, a lustful pattern after her, but he really doesn't love her. This fellow, Jonadab, is going to come up later, too. He's a very interesting person. He's going to play one side against the other more than once in this narrative. But he's David's nephew. Remember, Joab was David's nephew. Jonadab is David's nephew. So he's Amnon and Absalom's and Tamar's cousin. So now you have all the players together. The plot is hatched in verse 5. Jonadab then said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat, and let her prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Interesting plot. Guess who just, or did you notice rather, who just got pulled into the plot of this rape? Dad did. Exactly. Dad gets unwittingly pulled into this plot. That's part of his discipline because he's going to have to go to bed after this happens with the understanding that he set it up, that he was fooled, he was duped. But David set this thing up. Verses 6-19 described the rank. It's a pretty straightforward story. I don't intend to dwell for a long time on it, but just to point out a couple of details in the narrative. So Amnon laid down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. One quick note. Again, I showed you, you have on your chart, all the 19 sons of David, all these wives, one might ask, where did they all live? The probability is that they all lived fairly close to one another, probably in the, the royal compound in some way. So when we talk about Amnon's house, he's still a relatively young man, relatively young. We might also take that as an apartment in a larger facility. So back to verse 6. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill when the king came to see him as he would with his oldest son, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent to the house for Tamar, saying, Go now to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house as he was lying down, and she took dough, kneaded it, and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and dished them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, have everyone go out from me. So everyone went out from him. Even though this is his sister, she's so pure her antennas don't go up that something's going wrong. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the bedroom to her brother Amnon. When she brought them in to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me. My sister. This is actually pretty vulgar the way that he says it. I appreciate the English English text for making it pretty vanilla. Where have you heard that phrase before, except for the "my sister" part? Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Remember that? That's what she says to Joseph. The only thing different is he adds very ironically uh, and very perversely, "my sister." But just like Joseph resisted the advance. Of Potiphar's wife, so Tamar resists the advance of her brother. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where can I get rid of my reproach? As for you, you'll be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he'll not withhold you from me. This woman is desperate. She's saying, Listen, if you'll talk to dad I mean, you're my half-brother. You're not my full brother. Maybe something could be worked out that would make this something of integrity. But don't do this. However, he would not listen to her, verse 14. Since, she was, since he was stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. I want to stop there for just a moment. There, I told you when we started these discipline narratives that there would be irony all over this. We have to remember when David violated Bathsheba. David did take Bathsheba, which has led some commentators to believe that there was some form of David forcing himself upon her. But the bigger aspect of David forcing himself upon Bathsheba was that he's the king. And he had the authority to pretty much do whatever he wanted to do. He was the sovereign, so he put Bathsheba in a very difficult position. In the same way, for example, in a university setting. Universities frown very heavily upon professors having intimacy with students, because the professor has a great deal of authority over the student, and it's not a fair thing. Same way in the workplace, in our workplaces today, it's it's frowned upon to the max for a boss to we call it sexual harassment now to to put a a female employee if it's a male boss or a female boss and the other way around, but a male boss putting a female po- employee in a difficult situation. Because that person has authority over them. So that's what David did with Bathsheba. But you see what Amnon does with Tamar. He forces himself in spades. This is not just because he's the big brother. There's no authority there. He's forcing himself because he's bigger and he's stronger and he's taking her. And so what David did is coming back to him, might I say, fourfold. It's, it's much intensified over what he did to Bathsheba. And now it's just gone way out of hand. And this brother rapes this sister. If Ahav in verse 1 and verse 4 meant that he loved her, then you would think he'd just be wanting to marry her after this. But no. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. For the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And I said to her, Get up, go away. But she said to him, No, because this wrong in, in sending me away is greater than the other which you have done to me. And he wouldn't listen. What a jerk. What a low life human being. This is the kind of fellow that the Mosaic Law was written for that prescribed capital punishment for rape. Oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. You do the rape and you boot her out in the street. This young girl. Then he called his young man who attended him instead. remember he had sent them away from them, out of the room, now throw this woman out of my presence and lock the door behind her. Can you see why Anselm's going to want to kill him? I'm not saying that's justified. That's, somebody else should have intervened. But no wonder. This guy had violated his half-sister in a grotesque way. With no repentance whatsoever. No sorrow over it. No confession over it. None of that. He's a lousy human being. And how do you think he got that way? He got that way because this is one of the biggest areas of failure in David's life. This sheet right here. All 19 kids with 8 lives. That's where he messed up. It just goes to show you that great people have flaws. I love David. I named my son after him. But boy, he has some serious flaws. Now, in God's eyes, he was still a man after God's own heart. The Davidic covenant wasn't pulled away from him. It's not that God overlooked the sin. God knew that he was going to end up having the discipline eventually. Still gives him victories. But when something's wrong, we've got to call it wrong. This is a bad aspect of David's life. Anybody that's a father, grandfather, uncle, we have responsibility to those male offspring in our lives to teach them to treat women well. To teach them to be Christian men of integrity. Not to just leave them on their own for the culture to teach them. Look, if you don't teach them, somebody's going to. I had a great friend one time. I guess he's still my friend. I haven't talked to him in a while. He's a physician. And this was back in the early 70s when a particular rock group that painted their face up. It was Kiss. that uh, painted their face up. and It was a very popular group. And his son, his teenage son, had gotten into this. And my friend John was very upset about it. And he was saying, gosh, I just don't know what to do with my boy. I said, well, tell him not to do it. You know, guy, if that's what he's doing, if he's starting to mimic everything that they do, then pull it away from them." He said, no, I'm not going to do that. It's just it's not my place. It's not my place to tell my son what to do. No. <laughs> and I was only about 21, 22 at the time, but I knew better than that. I didn't have any children of mine, but I knew better than that. I said, listen, John. If you don't tell him what to do, if you don't give him some guidance, somebody else is going to. He's going to get guidance from somewhere. And in this case, he was getting guidance that he should have got from his dad, from his friends, from other 16, 17-year-old boys. A couple years later, I run into John again. And he was very upset. I said, what's the matter? He said, well, I'm having a lot of trouble with my son. And it hadn't just stopped there. I mean, that train had gone way off the track. I said, John, remember our conversation? He said, I did. I don't want to hear about it. He should have made his own decision. I said, you still haven't heard your lesson. David should have been spending time with these 19 boys, you think especially his oldest, giving him some instruction on how to treat a woman. But how could he? But he didn't seem to know very well himself. Back to the narrative. So now Tamar has been thrown out. In verse 18, now she had on a long-sleeved garment, for in this manner the virgin daughters of the king dressed themselves in robes. Then his attendant took her out and locked the door behind her. And Tamar, can you imagine this mid-teen girl? She's just devastated. In her her mind, her whole life is over now. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long-sleeved garment, which was on her. And she put her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went, We see that Amnon did not love Tamar. It was simply lust. Would that most or more girls would realize this before it's too late. Guys are going to say pretty much whatever they want to say to get whatever they want. That's just a sad reality for most guys. That's why you don't need to be going out with anybody unless they're a person of integrity in the first place. Don't put yourself in that position every single week. Young girls, really young girls, I'm talking about 13, 14, 15-year-old young girls, flood crisis pregnancy centers all over the city. I know about the one in Pasadena because I hear firsthand accounts of that. They're in their mid-teens, and the father of the baby is nowhere to be found. They're usually escorted into the facility by one of their parents or sometimes a friend. But the father of the baby is often not there. You ask where the father of the baby is. Well, he's not in the picture. Why is he not in the picture? Well, he, you know, I did this, and then I haven't heard from him since. Oh, yeah, he loved you. He loved you so much, he did this to you. And now he wants to take no personal responsibility for it whatsoever. And you just want to look at these young girls, and it's just, you just put your armor, arms around them and say, What were you thinking? Well, he said this. Yeah, but what were you thinking? The bad part is, is when they're second, third, and fourth timers. At the crisis pregnancy center. That happens a lot. And then you really wonder, what are you thinking? But you know what? At the crisis pregnancy centers, they are loved. They're loved upon. They're given the gospel. And a tremendous number of these girls accept the gospel. This fellow, Amnon, uses this girl, Tamar, this tender flower, He uses this tender flower to satisfy his base desires, and then he dumps her. Listen up, girls. He doesn't love you. He doesn't love you, or he wouldn't put you in that position in the first place. You'll be left holding the bag or raising the baby by yourself with your folks. Don't do it. According to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 29, in this situation, Amnon should have married Tamar. When he took a virgin, he should have married her. In the Mosaic culture, the sexual act was actually the marriage ceremony. So they were they were married as far as Mosaic law took place. He is forcibly showing everybody that he's not marrying her, and he boots out and locks the door behind him. Well... Enter Absalom, the brother. This is the aftermath, and we'll close with this in verses 20 through 22. Then Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? She apparently answers yes. But now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Verse 21 is interesting. It's a very interesting verse. Now, when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. But that's all we have. I don't know if he if he Amnon. It doesn't seem like he did. Just that when he heard about it, he was really upset. But he doesn't do anything about it nothing. He doesn't execute justice on his son. Now, I'm not saying it would have been easy to do that, it would have been pretty difficult it been very emotionally difficult to say, Son, what did you do to your sister? And then whatever he had to do to try to work it out, this one for Amnon or going in accordance with the Deuteronomy 22 passage, I don't know what, but he doesn't do any of that. Again, showing that this is not his strength. His family life is not his strength. So it's going to fall on Brother Absalom. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister, Tamar. I want to point out one more thing, and that is that Amnon is first in line for the throne. There's this next son, Kiliab, who would have been next in line, but we don't hear a lot about him. And then the third in line to the throne is Absalom. So when people start getting killed, the line line to the throne is going to be moved on down the list quite a bit. It's very likely that Absalom was smarter than Amnon because he keeps his mouth shut and he pulls a Michael Corleone on him and just waits. He waits for the proper time when he's going to settle all family business. That's not right. It wasn't right in Godfather. and It's not right in Second Samuel chapter 13. But that's what he does. David had violated Bathsheba. By abusing his position to seduce her. Now his son violates his position in that he is physically stronger to violate.